Today on Peace Talks Radio, what might we be able to do as a community to stem the tide of dating violence and domestic violence homicide? Now, investigators say Montoya was a jealous ex-boyfriend of Stefania Gray. The home was broken into and the victims were fatally shot. Today we'll learn about an early intervention program known as the 4th R, a relationship-based violence prevention program for schools aimed at heading off domestic and dating violence behaviors before they can become ingrained in young people as they grow into adults. By offering programs like this to schools, I think we will see a significant reduction in the incidence of dating violence and domestic violence. We'll talk with one of the Canadian researchers and professors who started the program and see how it's working out in the Bronx in New York. And all the clients would say, you know, Alexandra, everybody knows what abuse looks like, but what does health look like? And so I was determined at that point to start teaching what the health model is. An upstream approach to preventing dating violence. We'll look at it today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, a personal story leads to our topic of early intervention to help prevent dating and domestic violence. For exercise and recreation, I play basketball a couple of times a week with some older guys at the University of New Mexico who can't run with the students anymore but still love the game. Mostly it's university faculty and staff people. When 10 show up, we start the game. I was running late one Tuesday morning in March of 2010 and didn't expect to make the first game because I knew all the guys who tended to get there early. But when I arrived, I was in fact number 10, so one of the early guys must not have shown up. As I walked in, my friend Matt came over and said, Did you hear about Hector? Hector Torres, an English prof at the university, was typically one of the early guys. He hadn't shown up. No, what, I said. He was the professor who was murdered Sunday, said Matt. Latest information, Jim. And, Mike, uh, both victims were English teachers who were dating at the time. Now, the man has been identified as 54-year-old Hector Torres, an English professor at UNM. Now, the other victim has been identified as 43-year-old Stefania Gray, a ninth-grade English teacher at Bernalillo High School. Uh, Police have charged 37-year-old Ralph Montoya for both murders. Now, he turned himself in yesterday and told police that they would find Torres and Gray's bodies at Torres' home in the 2700 block of Santa Monica. I couldn't quite get a handle on this, as Matt told me. Hector Torres was one of the calmest, friendliest souls I knew. The thought of him and his girlfriend Stefania being shot to death, possibly by her jealous former boyfriend. What, why, how, and what do we do today? Matt said we had to play ball because that's what Hector would have wanted us to do. So we all ran up and down the court in a wordless daze. Hector hardly ever missed a game, so him being absent alone made it a little strange. And then the awful imagined circumstances of his death swirling around in our heads. At some point, I just excused myself to the locker room, went to a bathroom stall, and wept. In the days that followed, I learned more about, first, how much Hector meant to his students and colleagues. He'd been teaching at UNM since the 1980s, so you can only imagine the impact he had. 
In the days that followed, KRQE, the local news affiliate, reported Montoya's history of stalking and threatening behavior. This is the second time Montoya has been in an orange jumpsuit like this recently. He was charged a month ago for aggravated battery, kidnapping, and aggravated assault after police say he forced his way into Professor Torres's home back in January. Stefania Gray said she believed Montoya followed her there from Bernalillo High School after she got off work. She told police Montoya had a knife pushed her to the ground, kicked her in the ribs, and pulled her hair. Professor Torres eventually managed to calm Montoya down, and he left. In the handwritten police report, Gray said Montoya had stalked her, and she was afraid he would come after her again. Gray said Montoya couldn't accept that she was not his girlfriend anymore. Montoya there were other instances of intimidation and stalking in Montoya's past, it seemed, which is as far back as the news reporting had to go to finish their storytelling. This guy was trouble for a long time they concluded, and it finally led to this, end of another sad story. I started to think about the bigger picture and the longer view. What is commonly in a perpetrator's past that might lead to a life of stalking and intimidation of dating partners? I asked one person familiar with the Torres Gray case who said that prosecutors would never look that far back in Montoya's past. The defense might, If they wanted to make a case for Montoya being a victim himself of some kind of abuse or turbulent upbringing that might have sent him down that path of desperate behavior around the breakup of relationships. Then my mind skipped to our popular media, music, movies, TV, which tend to set up such a desperate scene around relationships. For drama's sake, the breakup will often inspire a lyric or storyline of a jealous, clinging ex-lover doing anything to regain the relationship or to make the one who ended it pay. It's even sometimes framed as a romantically noble or justified way to behave. Even my favorite band of all time, The Beatles, sang an explicit song that, in light of news of domestic homicides, is hard to listen to. Music writers point to John Lennon's occasional misogynist lyric and suggest that it may have been born from his mother leaving him as a child to be raised by an aunt. And you can listen to Lennon's music over the years as a Beatle and then a solo artist to hear him coming to terms with a deeper understanding of gender roles. I don't want to digress, but my point is, is that it seems that our role models are rare for reasonable, forgiving, everyone-moving-on types of relationship breakups. So I wondered if anyone was working on developing programs that might help young people in middle school or high school to get some tools to manage the herd of relationships and breakups. I wasn't too surprised that it was hard to find such programs much in evidence in U.S. schools. But there was a program developed by a couple of Canadian psychology professors, David Wolfe and Peter Jaffe, who'd been studying child abuse and its connection to later dating and domestic violence for decades. The school-based program known as the Fourth R brings relationships alongside reading, writing, and arithmetic. David Wolf told me this program intends to reduce adolescent violence, dating violence, and relationship and domestic violence later on in these young people's lives. It's in about 800 schools across Canada. It's only in a few places in the United States, but later we will talk about how this particular curriculum is working out in the Bronx in New York City. 
But first, my conversation with David Wolf, co-creator of the 4th R program, who told me what most often shows up in the history of perpetrators of dating violence. Child maltreatment is definitely the number one, and it's still overlooked. It's one of those issues. It's like uh, the relationship between smoking and lung cancer. Everyone knows it's there. You can't prove it because you can't uh, randomly assign people to to smoke or not. But it's the, we all agree it's a significant risk factor. So with child maltreatment, it affects uh, relationships. It's a relationship-based disorder. So your view of relationships is one of victims or victimizers. You either... I think you have to victimize others or you're going to, or you think that you have to play the role of the victim. You don't know what else to do. And you've grown up with those types of images of relationships and without proper healthy alternatives, you'll end up repeating them whether you want to or not. It's something you've learned and we all know violence is a learned behavior, but we never question who's teaching it and that's and how we can unteach it. Mm-hmm. Is there something else that maybe like less obvious that uh, is uh, something that your research has turned up outside of the child abuse? Well, in adolescence, developmentally, their job is to move away from the parents and, and establish peers and, and romantic relationships, and that's that's what they're doing. And sometimes it's a very, uh, you know, very uh, rapid transition, a very rough transition. Sometimes it's smooth, but uh, they're, they're trying to figure out how to um, relate to other people in a new way. They try on new everything. So that's why prevention is so helpful at this age because they, they're open to new ideas. They want to be different than maybe the way their parents or their siblings were, but they don't know how. So they're experimenting. That's part of their job. And the way they do that, of course, is very much controlled by their environment, by their social environment, by the media, by the images and expectations that others have of them, sex roles and gender roles. So... Uh, that's why it's so difficult. If you're a 13-year-old boy, maybe you think uh, what's attractive to girls is being tough and uh, showing them you love them by hitting them. Uh, so those are the things that we're trying to correct. And they're, uh, you'd be amazed at how powerful some of those messages are for boys they really, and girls. They really don't know uh, what a healthy gender role is. And I know a lot of people do like to point to the media. What role does popular culture, music, movies, television, the Internet seem to play these days? It's a bigger and bigger role. It's always been there. Uh, kids do look for for clues as to how to behave from the movies, from books, from everything. They always have, and that's healthy. But uh, nowadays, some of the messages are not healthy. And if you have a uh, concern about how, much, you know, how am I supposed to deal with this, I'm angry at my girlfriend, what should I do if you type that into Google, you'll get some pretty horrendous responses uh, about, you know, things you can do, and, and they're all negative. So the advice kids rely on sometimes is not healthy advice at all. They go to their peers first. They go to the Internet second, typically, and um, if the peers have some ideas, some some healthy messages, that's great. But if we haven't taught them what to say, uh, they'll get the wrong message too often. So the the media plays a very powerful role. It can also play in both a, uh, a negative fashion, but it can also play it in a very healthful, positive fashion if we uh, provide more opportunities for that. Mm-hmm. Now you wrote a chapter for a, a handbook in 2005. The chapter was called Abuse and Violence in Adolescent Girls Dating Relationships. Mm-hmm. What has research turned up among girls and violence in early relationships that might be different from what young boys are going through? Well, this is a very controversial issue today because researchers are finding that girls report 
more dating violence against their boyfriends than the opposite uh, across countries, across studies. So um, then you ask the girls, is this really true? You know, what, what is dating violence to you? And it's, it's a real different definition. The impact on the boy typically is, uh, is fairly minimal. It's not, they don't have fear. They don't have injuries from this type of dating violence. Uh, in fact, they often laugh. So the girls feel that it's a way of communicating to the boys in much the same way boys communicate to one another. You poke, you hit, you criticize. Girls often falsely believe that in order to feel powerful or to feel equal to men and boys, they have to act like them. And sadly, that's they're acting in some ways that are the least desirable features of masculinity as opposed to the more positive ones. So... Uh, they're getting the wrong message, and they think that they have to be tough, and uh, and therefore they get respect for that, and that's uh, that can be corrected through education. Well, David, I'd like to look into your fourth R curriculum a bit to see what does address an upstream or early prevention approach to reducing dating violence and stalking or relationship homicides later in life. I'm looking at your website, which we have a link to on our Peace Talks Radio website too at a list of preliminary desired outcomes for this program in the schools that addresses youth dating and peer violence. And let me, I know we won't be able to cover everything, but let's just sample a little bit of these areas. It starts with the level of the individual students and a focus on improving interpersonal skills. But what specifically, what, what scenarios are the students asked to grapple with here and, and how does the program make an impact? Well, let me preface that by saying that nowadays um, in grades 7, 8, 9, um, throughout the U.S. and Canada and other countries, students are supposed to be taught these types of skills, um, but in, typically they've been taught in a very rote, didactic fashion. The teacher just explains the skills. They don't teach them. It would be similar to teaching basketball by just explaining basketball and not practicing it. So <clears throat> what we did is we said, these skills really are important, and they're fun to practice, and so we break it down like that so that actually in our province, for example, kids have to learn the difference between assertion and aggression and passivity. So you can just explain it on the board, or you can actually demonstrate it and practice it and show other kids on videos practicing it and criticize the good things, the bad things, engage the youth in it. So that's what we try to get the, to do in the classroom is to make it much more active and more fun and more realistic uh, for kids. Well, slow that down a little bit. Give us then a little bit of the distinction that students would be learning between assertion, aggression, and passivity. Well, they'll see a role play where the actors, typically uh, students that are a bit older than them, uh, but look like them in terms of their demographics and that. They're often from their own school board. We use student actors to do this, and the student actors uh, will be, uh, they'll go through a scenario like a party where there's drinking, uh, maybe there's fighting, uh, there's, there's intimidation, and although they don't act that out, what they do is they try to engage one another in you know, going to the party and criticizing them if they don't want to go or they, they don't want to bring booze or drugs or, uh, or they'll make comments about their girlfriends. And then in the assertive one, uh, the other party... Um, would be assertive and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bring alcohol. I don't want to bring alcohol. Or, uh, you know, if you speak to my, about my friends that way, I don't like it. They have to find the right words to say. In the passive one, of course, they act passively. In the aggressive one, they act aggressively. And then the kids watch these. They criticize them. They talk about what they like and don't like about them. 
And they walk away often commenting that, you know, I never really thought about the difference. Everyone knows how to be aggressive. Not everyone does it, but there's plenty of models of that out there. And passive is, is pretty easy too, but assertive is not. And they have to find their own ways of doing it. They can't be assertive the same way you or I would. So mm-hmm. it, it does take some practice. So what they're seeing is that assertion equals calm power somehow. That's right. Without being teased further, not engage in it. Be you know, What do you do to, to feel comfortable in the situation? You can use humor as part of your assertiveness. There's lots of different ways you can do it, but it's it's critical that you that you don't uh, engage them and and allow it to turn into aggression. So, also in the desired outcomes, you list and you keep using in the literature this term positive relations. Uh, it might seem obvious, but what what do we mean by positive relations? Well, it is kind of a general term, but it means how to relate to another person in a way that you feel good about it. And they feel good about it. Um, it's something that you're achieving your end in that and you feel connected to them. So positive relations mean using healthy skills, pro-social skills uh, that uh, communicate what you're trying to communicate without using uh, bullying tactics, aggressive tactics, intimidation, threats, and so forth. Well, it does seem simple, but it occurs to me that it may or may not be taught. And it certainly probably doesn't come up too much in a household where children are abused, but um, I think young people sort of lose sight about a personal responsibility uh, of helping people feel good about themselves. I mean, short of being responsible for someone else's feelings, there is something that you can uh, do to make a, a more positive outcome of an interaction. Right. And that, and they need to see examples of that. Examples from their peers, examples that are realistic to them, not just examples from adults, uh, because they have lots and lots of examples of negative stuff out there. Mm-hmm. David Wolf, psychology and psychiatry professor at the University of Toronto. We're discussing his work in co-creating the Fourth R, a relationship-based violence prevention program for schools aimed at heading off domestic and dating violence behaviors before they can become ingrained in young people's minds as they grow into adults. We'll have more with David Wolf, and we'll look at how this program is being tried in the Bronx in New York when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online with all the episodes in our series at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and we're talking about an early prevention program for dealing with domestic violence and dating violence. It's not one that responds when the violence has already happened, 
Oh, those programs are important. This program is going into the middle and high schools to help promote an understanding of healthy relationships. 800 schools in Canada have implemented what's known as the fourth R curriculum, which adds relationship studies into the mix of education. Dr. David Wolf, psychology and psychiatry professor at the University of Toronto, helped develop this program with his colleague Peter Jaffe. We're talking with Dr. Wolf from Ontario. I asked him what parents should be keeping in mind with regard to their all-important modeling responsibility when it comes to helping their children learn what positive relationships look like. Well, their job, their job begins day one, and they, it's very, very important, of course. Kids will indeed be watching you all the time, and they learn from that, and they repeat it. If they see, for example, dad, dad being bullying or screaming or yelling, and it works, or even if it doesn't work, even if the police arrive, uh, they may repeat that because they, uh, they don't know better or, or they're upset, and when they get upset, that's how they express it. But that doesn't mean the parent's job is, is uh, it ends when they go to high school. It, it certainly continues. Um, their job is to um, and support some communication with their, with their teen around what they're going on, what, what they're going through at school. Tough to do at this age. But again, it's, the modeling here is to continue to, to demonstrate healthy relationships at the home with siblings and with one another um, and to be open to listening to the situations that their son or daughter faces as opposed to saying, uh, if I ever catch you doing that or if you ever go to a place like that, that just tells the kid, don't talk about it. Don't ever let them know. What we try to encourage parents to do is say, uh, you know, you're going to run into some difficult decisions. And it's very important that you keep yourself safe and your friends safe. So here are some ground rules in grade 8 or grade 9, and then the rules change when as you get older. Those are the conversations parents need to be having as opposed to waiting and punishing if they make mistakes that, that they don't always know are mistakes at the time. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you know, avoiding modeling abusive behavior between each other. Uh, have you looked into the value of parents actually kind of thinking more specifically about what does modeling a good relationship look like? Because I think that's that strikes me as that being overlooked. You know, you try to hide the negative, but you don't necessarily show what a healthy, positive relationship looks like for your kids. And you're right. It's We don't talk enough about that. And what a good, healthy relationship means is that a person can have an argument, a disagreement, and even raise their voice, become emotionally engaged, but not intimidate, not threaten, not hit, uh, and not punish in any way, and resolve the argument even if it can't be resolved uh, in reality, like there's a decision can't be made, you come to an end point. The kids need to see that among their adults, among their uh, parents. They need to see that mom and dad can have an argument. They can have a fight. You could call it a fight, but a fight means that they're really angry at each other, but they don't hurt each other and they don't use abusive language. And at the end, they make up or they feel that they've gotten the issue out on the table. They've come to some resolution. And with older kids, especially with with uh, teens and preteens, it's important that the parents go to them and say, you know, we had a, you probably heard us really mad last night. And sometimes adults get like that. Sometimes kids do. And here's how we resolved it. Here's what we were mad about. Because otherwise kids will form in their mind that one or both parents might be at fault and they'll start to go down the wrong road. They need to hear their parents uh, uh, struggling with these issues and resolving them nonviolently. Right, because if the mantra is never argue in front of the kids, then the kids never learn to handle inevitable conflict in their own relationships. 
Well, that's right. And that's the argument has to be, you know, has to be respectful. It's, it's that simple. And if you don't know how to do that or can't do it, then you are definitely staining your, your kids' own relationships with that. I'm 130, uh, 930. Listen, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Here's a clip from a film produced in part by Start Strong Bronx, whose director we'll visit with shortly. It's the story of one high school boy from a house where the father is abusing the mother and his girlfriend who's getting better relationship modeling at her home between her mother and father. In a climactic scene, the boy winds up showing early signs of abusive behavior to his dating partner because he's acting out on the only relationship modeling he's been exposed to. I need you here with me this summer. Rick, we got accepted. I said, I need you here this summer. We can talk about it. We can find a way to make it work. We don't need to talk about anything, because you're going to be with me this summer. We're not done talking. Yes, we are. Why are you doing this to me? You're making me do this. Yeah, just like your mom made your dad hit her. And then I guess there's an inevitable uh, wall that you alluded to earlier about uh, resistance that I guess young people have to letting their parents in on their dating lives at all to help them work out issues that might be coming up. There is a wall, and that's, and that's part of why the kids don't want their parents overly involved and probably shouldn't be overly involved, especially once they get into high school. Uh, it's, it's tricky because when kids are little, we tend to know all, their, all the parents of their friends and, and the neighborhood and all that, and then they go to high school, and they can disguise a lot of information, and we don't really know where they're hanging out, and they can become very deceptive. Uh, we want to encourage open communication in the sense that of uh, responsibility um, and safety, that's number one. And and then uh, that means that they get more privileges and such as they demonstrate that. Uh, but you don't have to pry. Uh, what we did with our kids at that age is just to say there are certain ground rules. You can't go to a party in grade nine because it's, it's just you're not ready for that yet. And if you do go to people's houses, we have to know that there's adult supervision in grade nine and you're 14 and there will be alcohol in all likelihood and that makes it unsafe. So there's certain things you're allowed to say as as rules and then start to loosen them as they demonstrate more responsibility. You also mentioned a community level to this uh, program. Uh, what does that look like? I mean, what can people who you know don't have kids or aren't involved in the schools, what are you expecting from them to help? Well, that's a very good question because the community has always carried some of the burden and some of the um, the pleasure of teaching kids in the schools, but it hasn't been well coordinated. What I mean by that is that uh, a public health nurse may come in and lecture about safer sex. Uh, some someone from a substance use program may talk about drugs and alcohol. Someone from the women's shelter may talk about violence, and those are all valued people. Their their uh, comments to students are very very important. But we haven't used them in the best capacity. It's, it's almost been unfair. We asked them to come in for an hour to a crowd of 500 uh, restless adolescents and talk about dating violence. And, the, and they don't get the attention of the kids that really need it the most. It's, no one can. You can't, you can't do it that fast. It's like teaching algebra you know, on a weekend. You, they're not ready for it. Instead, we want to integrate them into the school. And most people in the community that, that want to prevent these topics... They really, really want to work with adolescents. 
And so this, the program gives that opportunity. The teachers encourage uh, these uh, community people to come into the classroom or the teens go to those settings for some of their volunteer hours or some of their safe schools activities, work together with the communities on a collaborative level because they want to hear the stories that these people may have, uh, but they want to also benefit at a higher level than what they've been having before. So that's how we use them. We, uh, we want them to be actively involved, but not um, forced to, to talk about the entire subject in an hour or two. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you're looking for a long-term uh, program where it's more consistent. Now, you used the phrase in your last answer that there are people who want to prevent these topics. And, uh, you know, I, I know you meant it in a different context, but it also made me think of uh, the resistance that um, maybe more so in the United States even than in Canada that there's still a feeling that training in relationships is not a legitimate fourth R, that it takes up time from the other R's and doesn't help test scores. Uh, do you really feel that there's any movement on this objection? And, and what's the difference that you find between uh, Canada and the U.S.? Well, we get no pushback here in Canada, very little, some maybe. But uh, uh, a lot of parents will say, you know, I kind of assume my kids were getting this, uh, the healthy messages around substance use, sexuality, and violence, and personal safety. I was hoping the school was teaching this. It says they're supposed to on the curriculum. Um, but because it's not one of the test score topics, they may not pay as much attention to their health and physical ed mark. We're trying to elevate that. But um, the kids like it. And if the kids like it, the teachers like it. And the teachers like it, the administrators like it. The U.S. is moving in this direction. I was just at the White House panel on domestic violence prevention back in uh, end of January. And the Institute of Me- Medicine just had a uh, meeting about these topics. And... We're all moving in the, in the same direction, recognizing that uh, relationships cut across all these other topics in the school. If they're not feeling safe, if they're not feeling connected, they won't get as good a test scores. So that it is very critical. We're, we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, Columbine was a, you know, was a tragic example of that, where they overlooked all the things that are going on in the school that were negative, the bullying and the harassment and violence that, that was revealed after they studied the uh, the school, and they focused only on their sports and on their test scores. And today, uh, you can teach relationships as part of health class when the kids are younger. That's what we're aiming for. Just like seat belts and don't smoke, don't talk to strangers, and personal safety topics uh, should be introduced at a very young age. And then you won't have the b- barragement of violence and bullying and harassment that starts to emerge uh, around grades six, seven, eight. Well, you've begun testing this fourth R curriculum. Can you tell us a little bit about the the results? To test it, we had to randomize schools. We had 20 schools in our school district that we randomized. And uh, so half of them received all our materials and our training, or they would do whatever they would normally teach. That would be the control condition. And then we we delivered the program in their grade 9 health class uh, in those 10 schools that received the program. There were oh, I think 35 or 40 classes in all. And then we compare them to the schools that didn't get uh, the program and follow those kids for two and a half years till the end of grade 11 to see if they had reduced their dating violence, substance use, safer sex, and so forth. And dating violence was the first thing, the main thing we were looking at, and that was significantly reduced, especially for boys, less so for girls. You know, so critically, you are able to have an effect on what they are doing to one another, by teaching this information. 
we also found that the boys were engaging in safer sex if they were having sex at all. And, uh, but we didn't affect the substance use because I think that that has to start a lot earlier than grade nine. Why the difference between the girls and boys, do you think? We think it's because, first of all, the uh, messages to girls was changing dramatically. We started the study in 2005, and the messages they were getting in the media and things really started to uh, change dramatically towards pro-violence among girls, unfortunately. Uh, but also, um, we I think the program, which was developed in 2002, was focused on what we knew about dating violence and domestic violence, and that was from a male perspective. We weren't focusing enough on what girls are doing. And like I said earlier, it's a different type of abuse and violence uh, has a different effect. And sometimes it is in self-defense, but the girls still need uh, a girl message. And, and that is about, you know, if you want to get a boy's attention or you're angry at him, you don't poke or hit. Uh, they, they still think that that doesn't hurt him any and it's no big deal. Well, David Wolf, in the context of our program today, which uh, initiates from my experience with a friend being lost to uh, um, relationship homicide, uh, in wrapping up, make your case for how the work that you're doing and the programs that you've developed can really have an impact on reducing the number of horrible tragedies that we see all too often in our news. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, Paul, the, that's an easy case for me to make because uh, we're talking about a public health issue now. We're talking about uh, roughly 30% of children um, are estimated to be abused in their lifetime. And that's based on adult samples, retrospectively, as well as current samples of, of youth. Abused in a way that may not re- require protective services, but they're growing up with negative uh, relationship models. That's a public health issue. That's, that means a lot of people out there aren't really uh, exposed to as good of models as they could be and may, may make a lot of mistakes in the relationship. So from a public health perspective, it's like fluoride in the water. Everyone needs to get a bit of dose of healthy relationships, alternatives to what they expect in a relationship to make some shifts in how they learn respect and such. And if we don't teach it in the school, it's haphazard very haphazard, and they may make many errors in their relationships before they they might learn their lesson. So we can reduce that 30% of child abuse, 30% of domestic violence, and I don't know what effect in the long term it would have on homicidal violence. Uh, we have to keep in mind that with any prevention, the biggest challenge is that there will still be some tragedies, and that doesn't mean we give up the prevention. Uh, it means that we, we try even harder. And by offering programs like this to schools uh, or through the school, it means everyone gets a bit of inoculation. The kids who need it more, hopefully we'll get more uh, as we get more resources on the topic. But at this stage, everyone needs to increase their vocabulary around this topic, their awareness around this topic. And I think we will see a significant reduction in the incidence of dating violence and domestic violence. And finally, can you think of like one moment in this curriculum, whether it be an exercise or a film or, or something that, as you've seen it roll out or maybe help prepare it yourself, struck you as like, whoa, this is really a powerful message and I can tell 
you know, David Wolf can say to himself, I can feel that if young people see this, that it's going to be something that they remember and will have an impact on, you know, reducing the the occurrence of dating violence or just helping them with uh, gender roles in in general. A couple things stand out. One is a just a simple exercise we do about naming the violence, and I've seen videos of it. We've we've taped the classroom so I can study them or look at them um, without sitting in and interrupting it. And uh, to see boys going around trying to figure out is this a form of violence and what kind of violence is it, even though it's not punching someone, it's it's maybe uh, borrowing money you don't intend to pay back. Is this a form of abuse? Well, yes, it is, and they need the language for that. And the boys will look at each other and scratch their heads and realize, yeah, it goes in this pile. It, that, to me, really shows that um, that something we may take for granted or not, uh, that they really need to have that clarity. And same for harassment and so forth. That they need to first learn the language. The other message that we've seen um, the kids have told us later on has been very useful to them is responsibilities in, in a relationship, and especially when you break up, because these are the most dangerous times we know. And so they practice some of that. What are your responsibilities if you want to break up with someone? What's your responsibility if they want to break up with you? Uh, how do you handle the emotions in that? And they, they need to think it through, practice, hear what others have to say, so that they're not th- thrown into, the, into that situation unprepared. Everyone has to break up uh, at some time or another, and we want them to do it in a, a nonviolent way. Well, what are some of the responsibilities? I mean, just a few. Uh, communicating more clearly, not just saying, well, I don't really know, um, not being intimidating or threatening or, or angry or not responding that way. If someone else says, you know, I think we should take a break, not saying, you know, start using abusive language. Those are the the, the key ones because what they will see in the movies and everything is, is, a, is extreme emotional reaction because that's entertaining. Uh, but they don't know, how do I handle this feeling, this 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 feeling of loss, this feeling of anger, this feeling of betrayal, whatever it might be. Um, who do I talk to? How do I listen? And those are the things they practice with their peers. And they can laugh and have fun with it. Uh, but the reality is that, that they are learning important uh, skills mm-hmm. in doing that. David Wolf, psychology and psychiatry professor at the University of Toronto, discussing his work in co-creating the fourth R, a relationship-based violence prevention program for schools aimed at heading off domestic and dating violence behaviors. In a moment, a visit with the director of a program in the Bronx using the fourth R curriculum, when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com. 
I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're considering early intervention efforts to steer young people away from abusive behaviors in their relationships, hoping to stem the tide of dating and domestic violence and dating homicides. Alexandra Smith is director of a program called Start Strong Bronx, which is working in seven Bronx middle schools, applying the 4th R curriculum we heard about from David Wolf earlier. She works at Bronx Lebanon Hospital Center, which applied to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for funding for this program. And she told me about some of the stats that helped convince funders that the need was real in the South Bronx. We know that 11% of New York City high school students, which is more than 1 in 10, report being hit, slapped, physically hurt on purpose by a boyfriend or girlfriend in the past year. And 7% of those New York City teens have been forced to have sex. So this is a problem. And we also know, in my past career, I was a domestic violence social worker. And so I would see people after the abuse had happened. And I'd be running groups, and one of the things so meaningful to me is I would run these groups over and over again about domestic violence. And all the clients would say, you know, Alexandra, everybody knows what abuse looks like, but what does health look like? And so I was determined at that point to start teaching what the health model is. So when I found out about Start Strong Bronx, I knew that this was the right way to go because everybody knows that abuse looks like a hit. Everybody knows that abuse looks like a punch or a slap. Everybody knows that an abuser tries to isolate the victim. But what does the health model look like? When I was talking with the clients who were adults, they kept saying to me over and over again, Alexandra, I wish I'd had this information 10 or 20 years ago. I wouldn't have gone to prison. I wouldn't be an addict now. I wouldn't, you know, and we could fill in the blank. I wouldn't be, you know, on the streets. I wouldn't be homeless. I wouldn't be if I had had the tools at a younger age. So I knew that we have to teach people at a young age how to keep themselves safe. Okay, so then without an intervention like this in middle school, uh, what are the potentially damaging messages or influences that might lay the groundwork for dating or domestic violence in the future? And, And I'm imagining that it's maybe a different story for young boys in young girls. Again, so I'm looking at a definition of the problem before we start talking about how this program actually fixes it. Well, people use role models in order to establish their own behaviors. So unfortunately, what happens is if you come from a family where there's any kind of abuse, you're going to think that that's normal. And a lot of people say they don't know what normal is. And I said, well, maybe you don't know what healthy is, but you know what normal is in your life. And we also get a lot of mixed, media, mixed messages from the media. The media likes to tell us, don't do this, don't do that. But what do we see on television? We constantly have messages of violence. We have constant messages of, of sexuality. We constantly look at the person who's strong and big and, and carrying a gun as being the powerful. And then we have the victim archetype. And I think until we can walk away from these archetypes, we're not going to be able to establish a health model. So of course, you know, at home, if the way to, to resolve conflict is by yelling and screaming, hitting, throwing things, what are we teaching? We're teaching that this is how you resolve conflict. When we turn on the television, we see people hitting, yelling, screaming, and throwing things. What's in the news? Charlie Sheen's big news. What do we see in the news? We see bad boy behavior, and people think it's funny. It's not funny. Bad behavior is not funny. It's dangerous. So if these are our role models, what do we do instead of? Why don't young people know what to do around the prospect of dating 
or understanding gender roles? I think a lot of times parents are very nervous to talk to their kids about dating. One of the parenting workshops that I do is it's called Are You an Askable Parent? Meaning, are you open and receptive to talking to your kids about the tough topics? And a lot of times I have parents tell me, Oh, I'm too embarrassed to talk to my kid about condoms, or I'm too embarrassed to talk to my kid about sex, or I'm too embarrassed to talk to them about relationships. So my answer to them is, what's more embarrassing, talking to them early at a young age about how to have a healthy relationship or talking to them when they already have a a sexually transmitted disease or they have HIV AIDS or they're pregnant? What's more embarrassing? When would you rather talk to your child, before this happens or after it happens? And I think that a lot of times kids need guidance. And it is difficult. So many people are raised in single-family homes, and I don't think that these are bad parents. I think they're exhausted parents. And I think oftentimes, especially in this economic climate, people have more than one job. So they're going from job to job, and a lot of these, the youth are left on their own. And they don't have these boundaries. And when the parent gets home, if you're a parent out there, I'm sure you can relate to this, you're exhausted. And you don't have that 20 or 30 minutes at the end of the day to sort of decompress before you start the next task. The kids are home. It's the homework time. It's cooking dinner, doing the laundry. It's keeping the household clean. So I think that we have a... a a real issue here and I think one of the reasons why people are turning to the schools is our youth are spending the majority of their times in school. They spend six to ten hours a day in school depending on which school system you're in and if there's after school programming and before school programming. I have some wonderful parents who come to the parenting workshops I do and those are really excellent parents but they don't necessarily know the right things to say to children. Has there been pushback from parents or education traditionalists who say that this kind of relationship training is not appropriate use of classroom time or or might even run against the relationship messages that they would uh, prefer to give based on their own experience with uh, the opposite sex or with relationships in general? In my experience, not one parent has, has complained about this program. As a matter of fact, most parents love it. What I like so much about the 4th R curriculum is it teaches how to negotiate when conflict escalates. The very first lesson of the 7th grade is what are the qualities of a good friendship? How do they look? What does it sound like and how does it feel? What are the qualities of a bad and unhealthy friendship? What does it look like, sound like, and feel like? And it really helps these kids get an idea of, you know, this isn't a nice person. And you can't have these bad qualities and be a nice person. It helps the kids to distinguish it. As a matter of fact, one school said that if if they got rid of this program, the parents would protest. The parents love the results. One principal said to me a couple of weeks ago that they'd gone from 86 suspensions last year to eight this year, and he thinks our program contributes in a large part to their success. These students, anecdotally, this one student had gotten into an altercation with another student, and they resolved it, and the uh, eighth grade dean said to the student, well, how come you guys were able to resolve this? And the student said, well, I've been learning in that fourth R class how to resolve things without, without, you know, coming to, to getting really violent, so we figured it out on our own. And I think that's a really great result. I can't imagine a parent complaining about their child resolving conflicts without using violence. You mentioned earlier maybe one or two examples, but could you go into some more examples then of lessons or exercises that young people are asked to try that are making a difference and specifically probably toward this idea of dating violence or um, relationship um, conflict that 
may later on lead to uh, sad and tragic stories. I have, uh, about a year ago, I did a focus group with students who had had fourth R. And I asked them, I want you to be really real with me. Because I said, I know the guys that wrote this curriculum. If you don't like it, I want to tell them that you didn't like it. If you liked it, I want them to know what you liked about it. So I asked them, and I said, I just want you to be real because you can't get in trouble if you don't like this. And this one girl raised her hand, and she goes, oh, I like 4th R. I said, well, can you be specific with me? What do you really like about 4th R? She said, well, I don't have a good relationship with my mother. My mother and I argue all the time, but after I had learned from 4th R that we have to talk about our feelings, I told my mother, I have to tell you how I feel, because if I don't tell you how I feel, I'm going to get angry. And it's not going to be good for me. So I'm going to tell you how I feel, and that's just the way it's going down. And it's a great lesson. Here's this kid who's understanding that her feelings are really valuable, that her feelings are important to herself, and they're important in a relationship to her mother. Can you imagine what kind of relationship she's going to have with a partner in the future? She's going to have the ability to express herself. She's going to have the ability to say, I matter. My feelings matter. I think those are really measurable outcomes. I think it was David Wolf who told me that part of the difference in the fourth R curriculum is is that it's not just a uh, sort of health education lecture that comes in as a school assembly or after school program, that it is a curriculum and that entails very specific exercises that uh, students are asked to engage in. They're not asked to just sit and listen. Uh, could you give some examples of those, uh, you know, for example, to try to paint a picture of if this were television, if we came in with cameras and we were allowed to, you know, shoot a picture of this, what would we see? What would it look like? It's one of the things I, I like so much about this particular curriculum, 4th R, is that the teachers become facilitators and the two and the students teach each other. For example, there is one exercise called Post-it Pilot. And what you do is you give each kid a stack of post-it notes. The facilitator or the teacher will ask a question, for example, can you tell me what some of the stressors in seventh grade might be? And on each piece of post-it note, I want you to write one answer. And now you have 90 seconds to answer this. You could ask questions such as, if you fa- if a friend of yours came to you and said that they were worried about their partner, and then you would add, that would be the question, what, what are some resources you could offer? So then they would all sit there and brainstorm, what are some possible solutions to these questions? There's a, a variety, so you could ask questions like that, like what are some possible solutions? You could ask, what would be some resources to offer somebody? You could also say, what are some danger and warning signs of teen dating violence? And if that were the first question, then everybody would know what all the dangers and warning signs are. Then the next segue would be, the next question would say something to the effect of, well, if a friend of yours came to you with these warning signs, what could you do or what could you say to help this person? So then they brainstorm in their groups about possible solutions. So you're teaching them how to come up with solutions for any possible kind of conflict. You could even say, if conflict were to escalate in a relationship, what could you do instead of having the conflict reach a level where it became dangerous? 
what could you do, where could you go? And so then each of the students would write down one answer per post-it, and they would brainstorm amongst each other some of the possible solutions. Talking with Alexandra Smith, who's the project coordinator of the Start Strong Bronx program. Alexandra, as I've been thinking about this topic, I have also thought about the drama around separation in relationships and where that comes from and the sort of thinking of like, I can't live without you and the possessiveness of relationships. And I'm wondering if the program goes in that direction in certain exercises or if you could address that uh, in terms of a theme that might even come up or uh, be tackled by 4th R and the Start Strong. I think breaking up is a very difficult and emotional part of any relationship. I think 4th R curriculum deals more with how to deal with conflict when it escalates, how to have healthy self-esteem, and I think those are contributing factors. But I also know that in domestic violence, the most dangerous time of the victim or the survivor's relationship is when he or she goes to break up with his or her partner. And I also know that there, unfortunately, are many cases in the country where a jealous person will murder the partner. I think violence is a choice. And we can use all kinds of excuses, but it's really blaming other people for our own behaviors. And violence as a choice is not acceptable. There, jealousy, you know, there's jealousy, and there's people who are jealous, and there's people who are jealous and abusive. And there's people who are angry. We all get angry, but it's what we do with our anger that gets us into trouble. There's angry people who are not abusive, and there's angry people who are abusive. So I think that jealousy is an excuse for abuse, and I think it's a rationalization and justification. I think that we need to teach young people about the early warning signs of abuse, which is if someone falls in love too quickly with you, be suspicious because nobody knows us that well that quickly. A a healthy long-term relationship, it takes time. It takes time to learn how to trust somebody. It takes time to learn how to to love somebody because we don't know them. We don't know someone in a week or two. If someone's telling you that they love you in a week or two, chances are they love the illusion because they don't know all of us. You know, you don't know somebody until you've had your first argument with them. And sometimes that can take a long time. Is it a healthy argument? You know, every couple argues, but it's how you argue. Or do you stay on point? And I think that we need to teach people what the warning signs are so we can leave before any ugliness happens. If we get out of a relationship early, chances are it's not going to escalate to the type of violence that I'm so sorry that your friend was was the victim of. Thank you. Is there anything in the curriculum that talks about the reality of a lifetime of relationships and that a breakup isn't the end of the world and it might be the best thing or the best thing to do to show you love somebody, to let them go. Uh, I'm wondering if these kind of themes um, come up. The Not in the fourth R. <laughs> I can talk about it separately from the fourth R if you'd like me to. Sure. Well, go um, ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I think 
we need to have relationships early. Our earliest relationships, such as friendships, teach us how to have adult relationships. We need to date in middle school and high school because we need the practice. Who are we? I think when we realize we need to, we need to understand who we are before we understand who we are in relationships. So I think that practicing relationships, practicing having good self-control, practicing having self-esteem is important, but we do need to teach young people that most likely, but not in every case, most likely we're not going to marry the first person that we date. So it is practice, and I think that we need to teach young people that having someone break up with you doesn't mean that they don't love you. It might mean that they're not the right person for you. We can only be who we are, and we can't try to change ourselves. If we try to change ourselves to be loved, then someone's going to fall in love with a false self. And if someone falls in love with that false person, the illusion, we can never live up to that illusion. And I do think that some people think that, especially youth, believe if someone breaks up with me, it's the end of the world. Well, that's part of adolescence. They, they, the prefrontal cortex have, hasn't been developed enough yet to realize that it's not the end of the world. It's the end of maybe today or tomorrow. But you know what? Next week, there's going to be someone else. And so we need to have a support system. Why wouldn't all of what you just said be an important part of uh, the fourth R or a program that talks about healthy relationships? Well, absolutely. That's absolutely it. The fourth R could certainly accommodate how do you have a healthy breakup? How do you get over a breakup? It absolutely can address those things. And I think that it can be as creative as the facilitator or the teacher it wants to be. And I think it's also depending on the needs of the students. I think sometimes some students are more sophisticated and will be able to understand and internalize these concepts. And some students are more at the concrete level and they need to know more concrete things like this is what uh, this is what bullying looks like. This is what a gang violence looks like. They need the more concrete. And I think based on the flexibility of the curriculum, a teacher who really understands the nature of the students could most definitely put in these aspects of how do you have a healthy breakup? How do you have uh, a healthy, you know, get over your breakup? How do you do these things? And you most certainly can do that. There's some kind, there, some, uh, some of the lessons have culminating uh, activities where you could do storyboarding for this. You could talk about, well, what do you do after the breakup? What do you do when you don't want someone to break up with you and you have anger? What do you do with these feelings? It absolutely can address these things based on the developmental level of the students. But our group sometimes is very young, like 11 or 12 years old, and developmentally, I don't think that they're at a stage where they are even conceptualizing a breakup. I think they're more at the point of friendships and how to delay and refuse behaviors. I think that might be a, a better question posed to an older, more mature group of students, maybe ninth or 10th grade. Alexandra Smith directs the Start Strong Bronx program, promoting healthy relationship development among middle school students in an effort to steer teen attitudes away from abuse, violence, and intimidation in their dating and other relationships and move it toward better communication and a more grounded understanding of what to do and how to act to improve relationships and what to do to get through a breakup without resorting to violence. Like our earlier guest David Wolf said, programs like this can't stop all violent acts, like the one that took my friend Hector Torres and his girlfriend Stefania Gray, murdered, prosecutors say, by a jealous ex-boyfriend of Gray's. But, says Wolf, as a community, it's one thing that might have an impact in addition to creating safety nets for victims and counseling for perpetrators of violence later on. 
You can find links to more information about all the guests on this program and other domestic violence resources at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003, order CDs of most episodes, sign up for a podcast and our newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.